I'm Raymond. And I'm Samantha, and we're from the Multifaith Chaplaincy at Bates College. The Multifaith Chaplaincy warmly and creatively nurtures the religious, spiritual, secular, and searching communities at Bates College to encourage students to live into fullness and build deeper connections. We value curiosity and create spaces for conversation, contemplation, and connection. We've named our podcast Buen Camino, or Good Journey in Spanish, because we'll be talking to people from the Bates community about their personal stories, the paths they've taken, and where they found meaning along the way. Our guest today is Phyllis Graber Jensen, the Director of Photography and Video for the Bates Communications Office. Phyllis and her camera are well known on campus, and she is a familiar presence at gatherings large and small. Her body of work is impressive and beloved by many. Phyllis sat down via Zoom with our multi-faith fellows, Diana Georges and Alex Zabin, to discuss her photography, Jewish identity, and what it was like coming of age in the 60s in New York. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Buen Camino podcast by the Multifaith Chaplaincy at Bates. We're just going to start by introducing ourselves. Uh, I'm one of your hosts today, and my name is Diana Georges. I'm a senior at Bates, and I work for the chaplaincy as their String Fellow Fellow. Hello, everybody. It is an honor to be on this podcast with Diana co-hosting. My name is Alex. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I'm also a multi-faith fellow. I work to organize the multi-faith banquet and the baccalaureate ceremony. Hi, everybody. My name is Phyllis Graber Jensen, pronouns she, her, hers. I am the director of photography and video for the Bates Communications Office. Phyllis, thank you so much for being here with us today. I'd like to think that we go back at least four years and every one of my great moments you have almost always been there to take a picture of. So it's good to have you. Thank you. I feel privileged to have been in those situations with you. It's an honor. Believe me. I'm blushing. (laughs) Alex, do you want to start us off with some good questions? (laughs) I would love to. Um, So Phyllis, if you could take us back to what Diana and I might refer to as the glory days. Um, Can you tell us about where you were born and the neighborhood and community where you grew up? So I'd love to. I was actually born in Washington Heights uh, community in Upper Manhattan at what was known as the Jewish Memorial Hospital, which no longer exists. And then my parents after a week's stay in the hospital, which was typical for women in the 1950s, brought me home to Kew Gardens, New York, which is a neighborhood in Queens, one of the five boroughs of New York City. So I'm a a proud native New Yorker, as we like to say. And I grew up in Kew Gardens for my first 18 years. And it's a childhood filled with a lot of wonderful neighborhood memories. It's uh, a neighborhood that's Um, in the midst of one of New York's glorious parks, Forest Park, which has horse trails and a carousel and playgrounds and woods. And the apartment complex that I grew up in, which was called Kent Manor, was in the midst of that park. And so I grew up in a time when you returned home from school, parents would expect that their children would go out and play for hours and then return home at the appointed dinner hour. And that's, that's how I led my life as a child. 
you know, learning how to cross the street at a busy intersection at a certain age, and then spending my many hours after school on the weekends playing in that park with my friends and often under the gaze of our devoted parents and other members of the community. And so that's how I remember the neighborhood and the buildings that I lived in. There were actually four buildings and they were centered around a main building and there was a garden and it was just sort of idyllic in a lot of ways. So you were a teenager during the 70s around that time. Um, what was New York like? Because I know from like historically, that's just a very, very activist heavy time. Well. I lived in Queens and my apartment building was, I'd say, a seven minute walk from the Union Turnpike subway station. And that would take you into the city. So as I got older and more independent, I would go into the city, which is what Manhattan is referred to. And I, I was a teenager coming of age as a young teenager in the late 60s. And so my awareness was um, growing as I entered junior high school or as it's now known middle school. And I was the older of two children. I had a younger brother. And so I learned something about what was going on politically in some ways through friends who had older siblings. And I started to learn about the anti-war movement and then eventually see it unfolding before my eyes in my high school, learning about the civil rights movement, reading books by Black Panthers, George Jackson, one in particular, and also being exposed to the feminist movement. And, you know, seeing demonstrations in the streets, seeing assassinations on television, seeing the response to the war in Vietnam, in addition to the civil rights movement, and the exposure that teenagers, when I grew up, I was a teenager in the, the mid to late 60s and early 70s, people didn't have social media. So you were exposed to, in my hometown of New York, to the three major networks and public television. And that's where I would get my news from. So some of the reading that I did, in addition to that, broadened my view. Ms. Magazine came to life and it just was, it was a very, I would say exciting. It was frightening in a lot of ways too, because there was talk of revolution, of liberation, of changing the status quo and teenagers didn't always agree with their parents or vice versa. I remember having some disagreements with my father in particular, with a the high school friend and feeling anger and embarrassment. But my father spoke his point of view and my friend spoke hers and they were in conflict. But th that was the kind of time it was, the revolution in music. And there's some vivid memories that I have, but the older you get, the less you might remember. Some things stay in your mind forever and others are subject to confirmation by others who might have been there because you might not be accurate in what you're remembering. But that's that's what I could answer in response to your question about what it was like to be a teenager in New York. Thank you, Phyllis. That's that's awesome. Um, I want to return for a minute back to your childhood, spending a lot of time in nature and a beautiful park in the city and also being part of what what I hear to be a pretty vibrant Jewish community um, and growing up with with the intersection of those two things. Um, so I'd love to know 
how did maybe religion and or spirituality play into or shape how you think of yourself today? So, you know, I grew up in a community that in my perception was completely Jewish. That's a misperception, but that's how I experienced it. So when I went to school, to the local elementary school, public school, most of my classmates were Jewish. A lot of the teachers were Jewish, not all. Some of the classmates were not Jewish, but my family circle of friends, the people that I encountered on a daily basis, they were Jewish. And I had a, a strong Jewish identity, which wasn't based so much on religious practice, but more on cultural and historical identity. Um, my father grew up in the Bronx in New York City into a family that was kosher. And when he married my mother, who was a refugee from Germany, they were not kosher. They were not religious. My mother grew up in Nazi Germany. Her parents were Polish Jews who had moved. They were married in Danzig, which was the place of their marriage, but they moved from Warsaw to sort of escape their more provincial religious backgrounds. And they moved to Berlin where my grandfather was a furrier and my grandmother supported him in the business. They had two children there. And then um, the Nazis gained power and then they were in a struggle to find a way to get out of Germany alive. Because if they weren't able to leave, then they would have had to go back to Poland, which was their plan. And, and they got out at the last minute in uh, August 1939, a, a few weeks before Germany invaded Poland. So they were very lucky in that way. My brother and I growing up heard their stories about what happened to them and to their families. And that became my Jewish identity, frankly. You know, our families did experience some of the rituals that other Jewish families experienced, celebrating Passover, celebrating the Jewish New Year, celebrating Hanukkah. And it was clear we were Jewish and not Christian, but when it came time to go to Hebrew school, which was the path that many children in my neighborhood took in order to prepare for confirmation, at, the, at that time, girls weren't really having bat mitzvahs, but boys were preparing for bar mitzvahs. And girls were, at that point, already you know, equal, on equal footing in terms of Hebrew school. My mother decided she wasn't going to send me to Hebrew school. And when I asked her why, she said, well, I want you to go to ethical culture school which is a non-sectarian ethical religious movement that doesn't link ethics with God. I mean, it could, be, it could be linked with God, but it's more of a, an ethical movement and a social justice connections. If you want to believe in God, fine, but you don't have to. But she didn't send me. And at that point, maybe she was prepared to. And all my friends went to Hebrew school. So when they walked over to Hebrew school at 4.30 every Tuesday and Thursday and Sunday, I would follow them and I would hang outside the building. And one day the rabbi came out and said, what are you doing here? And I told him. And the next thing I knew, he called my parents and, the, and then I was in Hebrew school. So that experience of going to ethical culture school, which would be in New York City, I never had. But I always remembered my mother telling me about this because even though she didn't send me and she didn't follow through in her intention, it signaled to me something about what was important to her and her actions and how I observed her actions reinforced that idea in my mind. So in thinking about your questions, that was significant to me. So I share it for that reason. A lot of the people in the neighborhood were not Jewish. When I look back at my neighborhood from adulthood, there's an active group online that has chronicled the history of Kew Gardens. And it's clear that there are lots of Christians 
and people of other denominations, although there is a big Jewish community, especially from Iranian Jews who moved there in the 70s and 80s. And there were also many German Jews who settled in the community in the 1940s and 50s. And they were they were refugees as well as, you know, not unlike my mother. Thank you so much. And that's interesting to hear all of the, the intricacies about some of your, your ancestry and genealogy from from the wartime era to post-war in New York City, which is really special. I'm wondering what caused you as a, a child to just be waiting outside of the Hebrew school, being like, hey, all my friends are in this building and maybe I want to be in here too. Do you think it was a community-related aspect that drew you there? Or do you think it was just simply you're in elementary school and you wanted to hang out with your friends? Well, I think it connects to the idea that every day after school, I would play with my friends. So mm-hmm. I was either playing in the park or I would go to someone's house or they would come to mine and we'd play. And suddenly they're going to Hebrew school. And well, I wanted to, to hang out. So that was probably what prompted me. And I might've been curious as well. My brother got sent to Hebrew school. Of course, he was two years younger than I was. So he wasn't already going when I started to hang outside the building. I still remember the, the rabbi this lurking, he was also a, a Holocaust survivor. And he is this tall elderly man. And he sort of slinks out of the building and says, ah, what are you doing here? Like another one, <laughs> right? That I can, you know, bring into the fold. So, and I don't even know how he found out about my, you know, how to get in touch with my parents. I'm sure it wasn't too complicated for him, but that's probably why I was over there. Mm-hmm. While we're on the topic, can you talk a little bit more about the role that religious identity has had in your life? I know that you were saying that you don't necessarily identify with the religious aspects of Judaism, but with the cultural ones. Uh, How has that kind of evolved in your life since you were a teenager? So, you know, that's that's a good question. Interesting one. You know, so despite the fact that I wanted to go to Hebrew school, I wasn't motivated to go to Hebrew school because I wanted to get close to God or or, or even to learn about anything. I wanted to be close to my friends. So I, I was a behavior problem once I got into Hebrew school and they threw me out. Let's go, Phyllis. Yes. And I was a behavior problem in school as well. I mean, like, like you, the two of you, I was a very serious student. I applied myself, but I just didn't conform to all the expectations of sitting still and behaving. And in Hebrew school, I think it's a common experience for lots of American Jews of my age to go to Hebrew school and find it very, uh, it's, it's not an engaging experience. And so you find ways to entertain yourself. I did. And then I got in trouble and got thrown out, but I didn't want to be separated from my friends. And I also didn't want to be considered a failure. So I got a woman, the mother of a friend to tutor me and I went back and finished. But as a teenager, I know I was asked several times to join a, an organized group. And I remember having absolutely no interest in that and being asked, don't you want to be affiliated? And that was the last thing I wanted was any affiliation with any Jewish organization. I found my interest in identity as a Jew um, in the kibbutz movement in Israel, which was a socialist utopian movement of collective living. And as a um, junior in high school, 
I spent a summer in Israel working on a kibbutz. And to me, that was, I wasn't a Zionist. I was interested in the socialism. And that was, that was a really powerful experience for me as a teenager. When I went to college, again, I had no interest whatsoever in joining like the equivalent of Hillel or a Jewish student union, because I felt like I wanted to break away from my sheltered upbringing and community. And even though a lot of my friends, not all of them, but some of them were Jewish, I didn't want to get involved with religious practice or rabbis or anything like that in college. And that really persisted through my marriage, which is another complicated um, part of the story. But I'll just jump ahead for a second to when I had a child. And that's the point at which I decided I wanted to pass along a Jewish identity to my daughter. And because my husband wasn't Jewish and I didn't really feel like I had the experience necessary to do it on my own, and you can't do it on your own because you're part of a community, that's when I decided to re-enter the life of organized religion, as it were, and join Temple Shalom Synagogue Center in Auburn. We moved to Lewiston when my husband, Hilmar, got a job teaching at Bates in 1992 in the history department, and our daughter, Cassie, was three. And at the time that she was old enough to enroll in Hebrew school at age five, that's when we joined Temple Shalom. And ever since then, I found myself to be very involved in the Jewish community in both synagogue life and all sorts of other ways. Thank you for sharing that. Um, that's a that's a wild journey. Um, that's interesting to hear about. I know um, as part of the, the Jewish Student Union here on campus, you're not only an amazing photographer for Bates College, we also see you as like a sort of Jewish icon on campus. And it's really neat, especially to see your exhibit that was in the main Jewish Museum of Jewish Women. And you captured some really amazing photos, including our very own Julie Jessaram from Bates College. I'm wondering how that manifested and maybe where that came from, from your own journey. I know you were saying earlier that it was typical when you were growing up that only the boys would get a bar mitzvah and it was less common for girls to have a bat mitzvah or not even a norm yet. So, so why capturing photos of Jewish women? I'd love to hear any of your thoughts about that. Sure. Well, thank you for your comments about the exhibition. That was one of the pleasures of my professional life to be able to, to mount that with the support and the invitation of the main Jewish museum in Portland. When we moved here, as I said, I wasn't involved with Jewish life, but having a child, which I think it does often for people, change that. And I found myself involved with a synagogue that had a shrinking population. There was a wonderful group of people, but they were shrinking in size and they were aging rapidly. And eventually the rabbi who was there when I arrived with Cassie took a new job and left. And we were without a rabbi for several years. And that coincided with my daughter's Hebrew school experience and her eventual bat mitzvah. And not having a rabbi in place was very challenging. So it was up to the members of the synagogue to step in and fill the void. I was the last person who could be involved with the Hebrew school, but you know, just out of necessity, I ended up taking a leadership role in that and had the support of a lot of people who knew a lot more than I did. And so over the years, eventually we did get a new rabbi and then we, we've ended up with Rabbi Suli Dresner and his wife, Lisa Mayer. They're an amazing group of people. And Interestingly enough, Sruli is from Kew Gardens, and he and I grew up in the same neighborhood, although it was like from Venus and Mars. He was from a very orthodox or Hasidic family, and I was from a 
almost non-observant family, and we might as well have been, you know, living on different planets. But we have some of the same memories, like the toy store on the corner, or the bike store, or the park. Um, but we just traveled in completely different orbits. But to have him here in Lewiston, Auburn, I take tremendous pleasure and comfort in having someone who understands my childhood. So over the years, I've come to know people in the synagogue just really well. My daughter and I did an oral history project about Jews in Lewiston, Auburn. We partnered with a Bates student who was a history major. And so we got to know people more intimately that way, just by visiting over and over again at meals, services, cultural events, Hebrew school. I feel like I've made a community here. And although the people in the community don't always agree, and believe me, we don't, I've come to really feel almost like an extension of family in, my, in terms of my relationships to them. So it seemed natural. I go with my camera pretty much. I take my camera wherever I go. And over the years, I've done a lot of photography of them. And I supplemented that with some more recent images and that made up the exhibit. That does sound like a natural progression to me. And speaking for, for most of the base community, I know that we, we really reap the benefits of you taking your camera everywhere. And I love seeing your photography. Just pivoting a little bit back to your high school experience. Yeah, I would love to know what that was like and what did you do during that? Well, there were two things that I did that stand out in my memory in high school. And one was that I was interested in writing. And so I was the co-editor of the literary magazine where I attended high school, Jamaica High School, which again, no longer exists like the hospital I was born. Um, it was decertified. And so it doesn't exist in its current form. But I took that literary magazine really seriously. I was really interested in creative writing at the time. And aside from pursuing my other studies, I volunteered in a hospital called Creedmoor Hospital. It was a mental institution. It was basically a warehousing of people. And I remember volunteering there for a year or two. That made a real impression on me about injustice. It was a horrifying kind of place. And during that time in the 70s, there was a, a big outcry against the institutionalization of patients like that. A lot of people were warehoused who, in inhumane ways, people who didn't even belong there. And then the other thing that I did was I was a serious tennis player, or I guess I thought of myself as a serious tennis player. So at the time, there were no girls athletics teams in New York City school system. And that was, in fact, true of New York State. And the state had created a pilot program right when I entered high school, I think, to try out certain non-contact sports which, where girls could play with boys. And they were successful, and they decided that it would be up to individual cities and municipalities to make their own policies, but they would have the option of making sports co-ed. And New York City decided they weren't going to do anything about it. So when I tried out for the tennis team, when I was a sophomore student in high school, the coach said, yeah, well, you made the team, but I have to tell you, you're not allowed to play. But if you want, you should go to the New York Civil Liberties Union and challenge the status quo, because I can't let you on the team because of your gender. Although he said sex. So I talked to my parents and either they or I contacted the New York Civil Liberties Union and they 
provided me with representation in the form of this man, Ira Glasser, who be eventually became the executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union. And he challenged the Board of Education. And after a series of legal maneuvers and testimony in public and et cetera, et cetera, the New York Board of Education decided to allow girls to play in non-contact sports. So when I was a junior, I was able to begin playing. And so the high school tennis was an important activity for me, as was challenging the rules and regulations in place. Because one thing I can say is growing up in the 1950s and 60s, the opportunity for girls in organized sport, were, they were dim. Unless you went to a school that had resources to provide you with uniforms or sports or equipment, and New York City public schools were not in that position, at least where I went, you basically had to make do with what was there. So I played with a lot of boys when I was growing up. I played handball, softball, punchball, stickball, tennis, football, baseball. I played them all, right? And um, the fact that I didn't have organized opportunities didn't make a difference. It was a pure pleasure for me. It was a way to forget about anything that was bothering me, to just feel comfortable in my body and the pursuit of excellence in athletics. So uh, that's another strong memory I have of growing up. That's so cool, Phyllis. It's really cool to think that the experiences that you went through and the kind of the trailblazing that you and your generation did is what allows for now people like Alex and I to play organized sports at all levels of education, which is super awesome. So thank you for that. Can I just say one thing? <laughs> yeah. I, I, and I appreciate that every time I, I watch um, either photograph or observe sports on this campus, just to see the power of the athletes, especially the, the women athletes. But, you mm -hmm. know, I got, and I've heard women um, my age say this too, but I got tremendous support for whatever I did for my parents. My mother was an athlete when she was a child. She was a gymnast and she actually was a member of a um, gymnastics club in Berlin in 1936. So she must've been 11 or 12. She marched in the opening ceremonies of the Berlin Olympics. Now she claims they didn't remember that she was Jewish and they eventually threw her out of the club, but she valued athletics. And so she encouraged me to participate in athletics. And my father, was the exact same way. He introduced me to tennis. He was really proud of my ability to play sports. He always encouraged me to play sports. And he also introduced me to photography as well. And he made it clear to me that although he had followed a path of uh, obligation and responsibility in choosing his career path, he really encouraged me to do what I love to do and make that the first consideration. So I have to say that my parents, you know, I appreciated their support and benefited from it in really strong and major ways. Phyllis, would you say that that is the way that you approach life now? Trying to center joy as the motivation for what you do? That's an interesting question about joy. I appreciate joy. I feel joy intensely. And yet I feel myself to be this very critical person. I have to pull the reins, you know, when I'm looking at a situation or talking with people not to approach it entirely from a critical negative point of view. And I think it's really important to remember the importance of joy and faith and hope. Those are all things that I might feel uncomfortable using in connection with me, but I feel very strongly about those three concepts. So I'm glad that you raised that question. I'll leave it at that for the moment. Mm -hmm. 
I personally think that there's nothing wrong with a little bit of nihilism. I think people that only choose to see the good don't get the full understanding of what life is and the suffering that is inherent to life. Um, and I also don't think that they make uh, good activists, <laughs> in my opinion, because you have to see the bad things. And I think they make they make choosing the good things all that more uh, powerful and all that more of a act of resistance. So. I think that's that's really true. And depending on who you listen to and you know what you take away, you could you can go in various directions. There's a lot of reason to be pessimistic and there's a lot of reason to be joyful. And I would mention that my husband, Hilmar, has been a huge influence in my life in looking at things critically. Sometimes I see him a little bit in the in the vein that I see myself, except he's coming at it more intellectually, and I tend to come at it. Uh, more emotionally, but I've had an opportunity to be exposed to lots of points of view that I might not have paid attention to through my relationship with him. And there's one that I, I raised the issue of hope. So we listen regularly to a podcast that includes the voice of a journalist who's a former New York Times reporter named Chris Hedges. He's a critic of liberals. He's a critic of colonialism and capitalism. And he can sound to my ears a little bit apocalyptic at times, but if you listen to him long enough, he really starts to me at least to make a lot of sense. And I, I heard an interview with the filmmaker, Michael Moore, that he gave, and he was talking in his way about the future of this country, the future of the world. And I'm not sure what the specifics of that conversation were, but Michael Moore said, well, I really like for people who listen to my podcast to take away some hope from what they're hearing. And I don't like to sell the idea of hopium, which is sort of this Pollyanna type of, of hope, but I'm wondering if you can offer our listeners any hope for the future. And, and I thought, oh, what's Chris Hedges going to say? Because he never offers that up. And, and of course, he's thought about this at great length, and he had the beautiful answer, which is that he quoted um, a friend of his, a personal friend, Daniel Berrigan who is a great Catholic activist from the 1960s and 70s. And Berrigan told him that good attracts good. And so if you behave in a way that's consistent with your ethics and, and having faith that good things can happen, that whatever you do will then attract the attention and shape the behavior of other people. So if in your life you can find a way to behave ethically, then someone's going to notice and they're going to behave in kind. And so, although that doesn't erase everything that goes on in the world that needs addressing, it's, it's a way of looking at the world in a positive spirit that I didn't appreciate before, especially coming from, from Hedges. So that was a real revelation for me. Mm -hmm. I really like that. I think, and it goes, it goes beyond good attracts good. I think like calls to like as well. In the same vein that if you choose negativity and unethical behavior, that that calls people to you that do the same thing. Yeah. I, I agree. And I, I got the advantage of one additional piece, one additional story that Hilmar told me, and I probably won't repeat it accurately, but he used to share this in one of his classes about social protest, I think. 
And he talked about the comedian Dick Gregory, another person who also came to Bates. And Dick Gregory was an athlete in college, and he wanted to organize a protest about discrimination against Black athletes in the early 1960s. And he wanted to protest outside of an, an Olympic gathering, and he got no support to do it. So he stood outside himself with a sign. And he didn't know this, but there was someone who became uh, a sports activist. Harry Edwards, actually, was a young child who went into the stadium with his father and he saw Dick Gregory's sign. And he decided that when he was older, that he was going to enter the world of sports activism. And his experience as a child influenced his experience as an adult to start this movement among athletes, which eventually led to the protest in the 1968 Olympics by two black athletes with their fists in the air in terms of calling out discrimination against athletes, both in sports and elsewhere. And so it's just another example of one person behaving in a way that made an impression on someone else who then influenced a larger movement of people. And I think it's, it's, it's just something to remember. So I, I'd offer that up as well. Phyllis, do you think that you could summarize your approach to life in one sentence? It's a very hard task. Tactics, not strategy. We talk a lot about strategy in our office, and I realize the importance of it. It's not how I approach life. I, I sort of um, react to things more than I plan for things. And I don't see that as a strength, but I'm just being honest with myself about how I plan or don't plan things, how I move forward with ideas and passions. If something moves me while I'm reflecting as I'm taking a shower in the morning or taking a walk, then that's what blows me up and gets me going. I don't have a plan for getting from point A to B. And I know those trajectories don't often work that way anyway, um, but I tend to react on, from the gut. I like that. Do you think that your life philosophy and your political ideologies impact the work that you do at Bates? Because I assume that as a person who works for communications, you're supposed to be objective and you're supposed to work towards the the mission of the school, whatever it is that they say that that is. But do you find conflict at any moment in that work? Well, I would say that when I started at Bates, I came from a journalism background. I had been working as a newspaper photographer for eight years. And so to, to switch from journalism to communications, public relations, marketing is a big leap to take. But I feel like we use the tools of journalism. And so is there a conflict? Yes, I, we're, I'm not a journalist here. I have to keep in mind that we're telling stories that promote the strengths of Bates. I'm, I'm happy to do that. I accept that I'm doing that. But for me, my philosophy of storytelling is that it's a mutual gift-giving relationship. So I'm offering you an opportunity to tell your story and you're offering me an opportunity to witness what's important to you in your life and sharing your intimate moments. And I also think that whether you know a person well or not, I, I could interview you and I would know you. I could interview someone I don't know at all. And to me, 
it's there's a certain kind of affection or even love that you give to people when you listen to them. What you're doing for me right now, what you and Alex are doing is really like an act of love as listening is an act of love, which is the, the name of a book. And I really believe that to be true. It's been my experience. And it's also my experience in telling stories about people, whether I'm photographing them or interviewing them, the idea that I can share and give this back to them as they gave it to me. That's what really makes me feel alive. Phyllis, thank you so much for talking with us. It's been really illuminating and I really loved hearing your story. I agree that listening is an act of love. Um, so I appreciate you letting us listen to you. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. And that's all we have for you today, folks. Bye-bye. Thank you to the Multifaith Fellows, Multifaith Chaplain Brittany Longsdorf, Raymond Clothier, the Associate Multifaith Chaplain, Samantha McCune, our Program Coordinator, and Phyllis Graber Jensen for sharing her story with us. Thanks for listening. We'll be off for the summer, but look for us again in the fall. Bye.